Y2K countdown in five, four, three, two. Welcome to our special 20th anniversary of Y2K, the year that was 1999 on Gilded Films. This is the podcast. Once again, I'm Christian. Hello, it's been it's been a little bit. And as always, here's Brett. Hello. I'm glad to be back. And yeah, uh, this is our first return to which picture was best where we look at a year in Oscar history for a while because we've had this year's Oscars. We are now in the post Green Book era. Oh my God. Sadly. So we're still here. We will survive. I, I, ju- I just reminded my mom that we have to go buy it because I have to collect. I mean, I collect all of them. So yeah, yeah. I. You know, there's a few that I still have to buy first. In fact, a lot that I still have to buy first. So I'll take my time getting that one, I think. Yeah. We'll see. In, much like Y2K, we're in YGB. I don't know what the Y stands for, but Green Book is, of course, the GB. It literally means Y. Like, Y Green Book. Honestly, y. yeah. There you go. Y Green Book. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we're here. We have made it through that for now. Um, and I want to give a quick update um, to all the listeners on where this podcast is heading. Um, today, like Christian said, we are discussing the year 1999. Uh, if you've been listening, a dedicated follower, you'll know that that is our second. This is our second episode focusing on that decade. We decided recently we're going to kind of switch things up a little bit, um, take a more rather than a random method of picking which years we do. It's going to be more um, of a process. We're going to try to cover, we're going to develop it into seasons, try to cover um, every decade of the awards um, at least once per season. So just to give you an idea where we're going from here, this is episode four of this uh, segment. Next, we're going to have probably our biggest, most notable episode yet where we cover the years, the films of 1939. Yes considered by many uh, to be the best year in Hollywood history. That will also be our first episode where we're covering more than five nominations for Best Picture. And we're also adding somebody. Yes. So KB, who you've heard on three of our bonus episodes so far, will be joining us uh, for which picture was best from here on out. So it's exciting. Got a lot going forward. Uh, But following the 1939 episode, we're going to cover... Some pretty cool years, 2007, 1950, 1985, 1944, and we'll finish out season one with 2012. I want to say thank you to our Twitter followers because you helped us pick a few of those years. And so we appreciate you voting in that poll and helping us decide what we're going to watch in the future. Thank you, everybody. Yeah. All right. So moving forward, before we get into these movies... We have a year to discuss, a pretty significant year in, I think, history and also especially pop culture. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say, first of all, we picked 1999 in 2018, expecting to do this in 2018, but it just so happened to land in 2019. So happy 20th anniversary to 1999. Yeah, funny how that works out. I can promise that 1939 will happen this year. So yes, we're not going to set on the 80th anniversary of that. Yes. Yeah, 20 years. Pretty awesome. So first up, we have to talk about, like I said in the beginning, Y2K. Yes. 
So Explain what is this. what is Y2K? So I sort of knew about it, but I pulled it up for everybody. And to quote National Geographic Society, the Y2K bug was a computer flaw or bug that may have caused problems when dealing with dates beyond December 31st, 1990, as the year 2000 approached, and the computers may not have recognized 00 as 2000, but instead 1900. Um, I obviously was like five years old at this time. I don't remember this, but from like 90s TV shows that you see, a lot of people fear that like the computers would break down, leading to like mass hysteria, planes would be falling down from the skies. It, it was literally like the Terminator. It was Judgment Day in terms of technology. And people were going crazy about it. And there were Y2K parties, shelters. And then nothing happened. At the stroke of, of midnight, nothing happened. Which is really oh. like, it's funny because 2000 is a year you should be ready to celebrate. Like, it's a new millennium. Honestly. No, we're going to freak out about Y2K instead. Yeah, and they can, I mean, the computers were little babies at this point, too. If a computer breaks down in the 90s, who cares? It's not like <laughs> as big as it is now. I mean, this right. the, day, the day we are recording this, Instagram is like pretty much shut down at the moment while they're fixing issues, and people are going crazy over that. I went a little crazy because I have some stuff I need to look at there, but you know, whatever. Yeah. Well, it's funny because like you said, I was, what, four when this happened? I think back to 2012 and when everybody thought, oh, that was yeah. a new end of the world. And I remember that night, uh, my school was hosting like an all-night movie marathon. And so me and my friends are standing there waiting for midnight. And like, even as a naive 17-year-old, I was not buying into it. I don't know if how many actually were. Uh, my friend canceled but, a Christmas party because she said the roads are going to be crazy. Oh, my there was gosh. Literally, there was literally nobody on the roads. I mean, because there was nobody on the roads because it was night and people were like, you know, home. Yeah, you know. But those come and go. It seems like every few months somebody is predicting the rapture. Mm. Uh, Y2K is just one in a long stream of false conspiracies like that. But I'm assuming it, it shaped all of 1999. And if not, at least the latter half of 1999 has led up to it. So, yeah, for sure. And so we have a little bit more highlights for you. Um, some that I wrote down. I don't know if Brett wants to share any, but some that I wrote down. Y2K, a little thing called Pokemon. Pokemon mm. became a massive hit in 1999. And that sort of all came together because of the television show. And I'm pretty sure that the first movie came out in 1999. I'm, I think you're right. Um, did you see it you know, in theaters in 1999? I didn't see it in theaters. I rented it from the library when it came out. Yes, yeah, so did I. Blockbuster here. You remember that, Blockbuster? Oh, man. But such a, like, a cultural thing because you had that movie. You had the TV show that everybody was talking about. It, it was really good. I mean, I don't watch it anymore, but the classic episodes are great. Yeah. And the cards. I mean, even if you don't play Pokemon... The cards were just like super fun to collect, as it were. Yeah, I mean, I had no idea how to play the game, but I bought so many packs of Pokemon cards. It was a phenomenon. I mean, it still is. Um, maybe not to the same degree, but back then, that was a big thing. Except come June with Detective Pikachu, where Pokemon finally gets a live-action movie. Oh boy. oh, boy. Oh my gosh, it's been 20 years. Look at that. I didn't just realize that. <laughs> well, what do you know? What do you know? 
Um, so next, not for the, the little kitties, because Pokemon's for the little kitties. I guess adults do. But President Clinton, he was acquitted mm. of uh, the Lewinsky scandal. Now that was at the beginning of 99, because that was mostly a 1998 thing. But really, really big situation there. Yeah. It's funny comparing that to... I'm not, I'm not going to go there too much, but comparing that to today, eh, a little different. Um, yeah, it's interesting to see like his, how that has been, you know, um, persisted as, yeah. you know, being associated with him throughout time. But yeah, wild, wild. Yeah. yeah. And then in uh, movie history also, we have something big happen where Stanley Kubrick, famous director who we talked about in a previous podcast in 1975 he dies in 1999 very very unexpectedly yeah yeah this will actually be the third podcast where we touch on a movie of his um 1968 2001 didn't get nominated but that was our personal favorites and this time we'll get to talk about his final film and so that's a pretty monumental thing for the film world at that time he, he died pretty young too and he had so many ideas left in him too yeah so it would have been yeah. something to see what he would have done with it but yeah i mean this is someone who a lot of people i should say but a lot some people consider the greatest director ever so mm -hmm. um a couple of highlights i had uh one is the women's soccer team winning the world cup the usa team and i i don't even watch that much soccer uh, but the reason I talk about this is because there's a famous photo of Brandy Chastain. She like, I think she made the winning goal and then, um, you know, took off her shirt like soccer players do and just went in this big celebratory cheer. And it was like front cover Sports Illustrated is a huge deal um, because that's such a big international event. So mm -hmm. USA team won it that year. Um, also a year for... I say, I mean, this is every year, but a year for tragedy, mm. especially that we're feeling the effects of today. The Columbine shooting yeah. occurred in April. And I think just for so long, you know, at a time when those weren't obviously as common as they are now, Columbine was the one that just always came to somebody's mind when something similar happened. Mm -hmm. It's... And it's sort of the one that started them all. Yeah. In terms yeah. of especially being broadcast on every single network and just the trajectory of all of it and how it happened. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm sure the somebody will be talking about it this year, 20th anniversary. Of course we will. Yeah. And it's really scary because I just saw right before, we started talking that local schools are still practicing these drills every day for mass shootings and like what to do in this sort of situation. Yeah. It's too big to ignore. And mm -hmm. you know, and I, it's, it's really quite relevant to the things we discussed because part of the controversy surrounding it was, you know, people looking for a scapegoat to blame for something so tragic, including movies and yeah. music and video games, violent video games, violent movies, Marilyn Manson and Eminem music. Um, the Matrix. The Matrix, yeah. Came out, I think, a week or two right before that happened. Right. 
And it's also kind of inspired its own set of movies. Um, I haven't seen it, but Gus Van Sant's Elephant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, school shooting topic and some say inspired by Columbine shooting. So um, very tragic, uh, but 20 years ago. Yeah. Mild, things have changed. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. Um, so a lot of other things happening that year. Um, a lot of big movie premieres, famous deaths. Um, John F. Kennedy Jr. was in his plane crash that year. Um, you see the rise of the boy bands like NSYNC and Backstreet Boys, which leads us into a segment that I think you probably enjoy. My childhood. Yes, the popular music of this year. Such songs include Live in La Vida Loca, uh, I Want It That Way, Tell Me Why. I won't go in because that's property right there. Uh, All Star, which I'm actually shocked. I have always thought that was like a thing written for Shrek. but Right? Yeah. Um, Mambo Number no. 5, which is a great song. And that is to my friend Toby because he had never heard of that song until recently. Mm. And everybody's favorite, Believe, as in share. Do you believe in life after love? That was a 1998 song. However... Uh, its popularity was pretty massive that it carried over into 1999 still introduced us to the auto tuning effect also. Mm, yeah. Huge. If you ever on Jeopardy, that's the answer to who invented auto tuning. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. And if you go through the list of the artists who had major songs that year, I'm just going to read some, obviously share uh, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, destiny's child, Jennifer Lopez, all the boy bands. I mean, these are pretty iconic for their time. I mean, this is every year. There's big artists every year, but there's something about this group and really they're up, and, they're up and coming legends pretty much. Yeah. And they've, they've got this new pop sound. I think mm-hmm. um, it's pretty fun. I mean, if you yeah. listen to their music today, it's still really, really catchy and it's really, really good still. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a huge pop guy, but I definitely prefer these over the pop that's on radio today, if I'm honestly honest. though. <laughs> and that's but, just coming from my childhood because it's yeah, bias. Yeah, I mean, it's like we all knew these songs. We heard them in movies and on TV and MTV when mm-hmm. they still played music. Yep. And so it's cool. Okay. Anything else from that year before we dive into the Oscars? I think that's it for me. I think I started kindergarten this year. Oh, how nice. Wow. Okay. It's so I'm I this is the first year that I think that I I was alive that we've spoken about and you were alive. Yes, you're correct. And I sort of vividly remember things in movie terms, but it's just so interesting to think that this is like the one that, Hey, we're both alive. Yeah. I mean, I was a preschooler. I'm trying to think, you know, of, I know, I remember seeing like toy story three, which we'll talk about, you know, Tarzan, things like that. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I can recall that era to a degree, Um, (laughs) you know, the year before I started kindergarten. So four year old Brett onward to the Oscars. Yes. And the big thing that I 
I noticed you look at the poster and you see this, and I didn't realize the significance of it, but this was not, I mean, there's always controversy or difference in opinion in which Oscars you attach to which year. This was marketed as Oscars 2000, mm -hmm. which in a sense makes sense. I mean, that's the year that this ceremony took place, but I was reading that this kind of, harbored more of the confusion about when we talk about the 2000 Oscars, are we talking about the movies of 2000 or the movies of 1999? Yeah. And I know we, you and I, the podcast, we all direct it towards the year that the movies were released. Um, but that is confusing at times when you have some of these conversations, whether it be on Twitter or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's like they took advantage of the year 2000 and they just went with it. Because you yeah. know that it's like the newest millennium. Why not? This is like a big, big moment. These movies are all, I mean, all the movies nominated for Best Picture are really good movies. Um, maybe that they'll have another controversy like they did the previous year with the Saving Private Ryan Shakespeare in Love. And, you mm -hmm. know, welcome to the new millennium of Oscar. Yeah, definitely. And it, they definitely took like, to me, it seemed like when I saw the Oscar stage, like on YouTube videos, they definitely tried to take that futuristic approach to mm -hmm. it with the fonts and the screens. Honestly, it didn't work for me. Yeah. <laughs> From the clips I saw, I thought, okay, this is kind of lame. Uh, but that's what they were all about. And I'm pretty sure that they either they used the same set design sort of looking the previous year or they didn't. And that just in my head, I've seen oh. enough videos that I can't even distinguish. It feels like. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, but interesting ceremony. Some articles we've read say that it hasn't held up well, but this was the seventh time um, Billy Crystal hosted the Oscars. He's one of those legendary hosts um, in Oscar history. I honestly history. feel that he needs to host again at some point. Yeah, his last one was, what, 2011? Yeah, uh, 2012 for the Year of the Artist. For the, the artist one. Okay, cool. Yeah, and he was second choice, too, because there was controversy around the first host. <laughs> yes. Who was that? It was first Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then with Billy Crystal. But I like Billy Crystal, and if you all get a chance um, on YouTube to look up the 1999 or 2000, whichever, Oscars, uh, you'll definitely see his video there. And he was well-known for singing about each of the nominated uh, mm. movies yeah and the only one that i really remember him singing is about the cider house rules because it was all pretty much about michael kane <laughs> of course okay. oh and i guess the green mile because he did it to the tune of the theme song to green acres uh nice green mile is the place to be <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny you mentioned music because this was also the year they had a medley of oscar winning best songs which i never knew about until like this afternoon yeah i first heard of it like a month ago and some of the artists i mean garth brooks faith hill i guess they decided to go country that year <laughs> um which even for me as a, a fan of those two artists it's kind of a surprising choice mm -hmm. looking back because it's not like many songs in that style were winning yeah. best original song or still are, you know? And this uh, website that 
you sent me today actually said that there were no nominated performance from Amy Mann, who wrote a song for the film Magnolia, Sarah McLaughlin, who wrote the song um, When She Loved Me from Toy Story 2, but they did have the music montage performance. They did have the Blame Canada from South Park song. Yes. And they did have Phil Collins singing for Tarzan. Oh, good. So really, really interesting that they wouldn't have like two out of the five, I think, nominated songs, but they did have a big old performance from some random people. Yeah, that's that seems like something that this year's Academy president would have decided to do. Uh, and then and then I'm reading, too, it says they had a montage of 200 years of human history on film. That is. That's intense. And you, see, and you see, folks, this is why it says the total runtime of the 72nd Academy Awards clocked in at four hours and nine minutes. Well, it's the thing like this, this like weird push for ratings and like to milk out everything you can is nothing new. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's been around. And so not that some of the things that occurred this year are excusable by any means, but it's it's part of their history now. Mm hmm. Got to get them ratings. Got to get them ratings. Plus, back in this time, it was still on a Monday night. You come home from work on a Monday. Do you really want to sit and watch like a four-hour show? This was on a Monday night? Yeah, back. I had no idea. I, I still, I'm pretty sure back in this time, this was still Monday night. Well, apparently it worked okay. I mean, 46.52 million viewers. Um, to put it into context, I think this year they had around 30. Which are oh, kind of on the decline lately, but this is on a Sunday night. Forgive me, folks. Oh, what well, Sunday? Okay. However, this was, I think, the first time that it was on a Sunday. Gotcha. That makes yeah. sense. I mean, I think back then, you know, which not that long ago, but even back then, a lot of the reason people watch is because you want to see the stars, mm -hmm. red carpet, and whatnot. And today, we see them all the time on social yeah. media and whatnot. So it's this not is, as this is back when we had Joan rivers too asking, what are you wearing? Ah, there you go. And people cared too. <laughs> people don't care anymore. I know some of us do. I do. Alrighty. Anything on that? Anything else on that ceremony overall, before we dive into these best picture nominees, I'm ready to dive. Let's do it. I'm ready to crash to the surface. Oh my gosh, here we go. <laughs> Musical number. Okay. So we're going to start, as we normally do, in alphabetical order, starting with those that did not win Best Picture. The first that we have listed here is The Cider House Rules. Christian, does it rule? The Cider House is okay. I mean, <laughs> it mildly rules. It's like, I mean, it's... More of the what it the Prince of Maine, but not the King of New England. Mm, I like that. But but cha. Nice. I mean, that phrase was so often said in that movie. I had to capitalize on it. Fair enough. Uttered by Oscar winner Michael Caine. Who? You mind if we start there with Michael Caine since he did win best? Sports yeah. Actor? No. By all means. Um. I'm I'm gonna look up this category here, make sure I don't miss anybody, but just so we know the nominees. Michael Caine obviously was a winner. He also had Tom Cruise from Magnolia, 
Michael Clark Duncan from The Green Mile, Jude Law from The Talented Mr. Ripley, and Haley Joel Osment for The Sixth Sense. We'll get into all those individually. Um, I'll just say, was this a career award? Because to me and so many others that I hear from, and I don't know, I think you believe this as well, Michael Caine is definitely not one of the stronger performances in that category. Yeah. Um, I look at this and he is maybe fourth or fifth for me here. Yeah, same. And I don't know if this would be a career award because he won in 86. Right. So it's like a double career win or it's because he's the oldest in the group. See, I wondered that too. And if you look at this group here and we're going to get into his Oscar speech, which is actually brilliant. Um, really one of my favorite Oscar speeches, but Tom Cruise kind of still, you know, leading man, um, top a gun guy, a very surprising role in Magnolia. Yeah. Yeah. And very out there. So I wonder if that had an effect as well. Yeah. Um, Michael Clark Duncan, I think is amazing in the green mile. He is. And I wonder if he was just too new, you know? Yeah. I mean, they like new people though at the Oscars, but that's true because Jude law, you could even say he's new, right? I'm sure he's made a few movies before this. Um, good role, very fast role. He's, I mean, he's really, he's gone. If you haven't seen the movie, he's gone very quickly. Yeah. Interpret what gone means for yourself. <laughs> and then of course you have Haley Joel, who's like what, eight, 10 years old. Yeah. At this point in his life. They're not really big on awarding kids. They really aren't. And I wonder but, if that's just it too. Like the respect for Michael Caine. Yeah. And his long career. I I mean, yeah. and like I said too, when Billy Crystal sang about the nominated movies, he's saying about just Michael Caine for the cider house rules. Mm, there you go. And really, if you watch it, he, I mean, he is the best part I think of cider house. He's the best actor in there for sure. In any case, but I, it's a good role. It's maybe not as amazing as, I mean, my personal pick is Michael Clark Duncan. It was at one point, Haley Joel Osment. I watched the green mile yesterday. <sighs> Things change. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to downplay it at all. Michael Clark, or sorry, um, Michael Caine, you know, very good performance. Um, to me, it's just like, it doesn't wow me. Mm -hmm. It's it's good, and he plays the part like it needs to be played. And maybe it's just part of it is the script, but it's not like there's a big, any huge moments where I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, this is something else. But... Um, the movie overall, I agree. He is definitely the best part of the movie. I think this film is inspiring in a sense. And I think that's kind of its mission to mm -hmm. degree. Um, it's kind of a come. Really, it's also really sad. It is. It is very dark and sad. Um, but it is a coming of age film. Mm -hmm. um, Tobey Maguire in the lead role. You got Charlize Theron. Um, Paul Rudd, Paul Rudd. Yeah. Ages. Right. <laughs> Definitely not. And I think it's a good, it's like the type of film a family might watch on a Friday it's, night. It's very much a feel good movie. Yeah. And it hits pretty much every single mark that any single Oscar bait movie would hit. Yeah. 
I agree. That's what, when, when I was watching it, that's what I felt. I mean, I've seen it before. I watched it for this, but I, you just you don't feel bad after watching it. Mm-hmm. But you don't. I didn't necessarily think, oh, this is like one of the best movies of 1999. Yeah, I, I ranked. I ranked pretty much everything I saw, and yeah, it did not make my even top twenty. Yeah, I mean it's. From what I watched, it's pretty low on my list. Like I said, I don't dislike it. I like it. It's a nice little watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say it's completely devoid of certain characteristics. There is the abortion topic yeah. of the film, which is pretty significant. And I was worried at the beginning that, because Michael Caine plays a doctor who performs abortions illegally, obviously. This takes place in um, the 1940s during World War II. And I was worried he was just going to be painted as some monster. Yeah. Going to go that route. And it kind of leaves it open to interpretation, but I think it avoids that for the most part. What's that? He's very sympathetic too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because he, he takes, um, let me get the name right. He takes Homer, Tobey Maguire, really under his wing from the moment. He also runs an orphanage too. And so uh, Tobey Maguire's character is pretty much second in command next to the nurses, but he learns pretty much how to be a medical professional from Dr. Wilbur. Yeah. And it, Homer, Tobey Maguire brings up a lot of just ethical viewpoints Mm -hmm. that, you know, he doesn't believe it's ethical to perform abortions. Uh, He doesn't believe it's ethical to, for him to practice without a license. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously, this it's like the biggest theme here is ethics. Yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, I don't want to spoil the ending, but in the end, the ethics come up about really why Tobey Maguire hasn't done much with his life. Despite I mean, except for being in that orphanage, learning from Dr. Wilbur, why he hasn't gone to war, because you know, going to war is like the big manly thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's my thing is that I like that it's bringing up these questions. I don't know if it addresses them as deeply as I wanted it to. Mm-hmm. It's pretty surface level for the most part, I thought. And this um, also won, I want to say, for um, adapted screenplay. Yeah. John Irving adapted his own novel, which I liked it. You know, it's a good script. Yeah, I thought it was fine. Um, I look at the other nominees, and I see again the Green Mile right there. Yeah, and for me, it'd probably be like the talented Mr. Ripley is in there. Yeah, um, which I thought that was pretty wild. And so election election is also there. Yeah, good category. Um, but yeah, this, by the way, was directed by. Um, oh, I'm going to mess up his name. Is it Lassa Halstrom? I think so. Um, said the you said the last name right anyway. OK, cool. Yeah, like I said, it had two wins for adapted screenplay and supporting actor. Um, fairly good box office showing. It was also nominated for best picture, director, film editing. Um, sorry, five noms. Score and art direction. And the score one really gets me because there's there's one part of this film that I really just didn't like. It was the score. Mm-hmm. It's it's very prominent, but it feels so like lifetime movie ish to me. That's when you know you have yourself some Oscar bait. See, yeah, there you go. It so, always has to do. It's always the score that does something for me. 
it's like when you know a score is like repeating on itself and it doesn't really affect you mm-hmm. in the moments where nobody's talking and you just have that score. I mean, yeah, you know, usually if I notice it, it's either really good or really bad. Mm-hmm. If I don't notice it, it just means and I, I mean, I always notice it to some degree, but yeah, this one I was not a fan of. It made it. I mean, like you said, it did make a good amount of change at the box office. Yeah, um, about fifty-seven million dollars um, total. So twenty-four. Yeah, pretty good haul. Yeah, sure. Oh, and one more. I don't know if I, I forgot to explain Michael Caine's speech. Oh, um, the best speech of the night. For sh- that, yeah, that I've seen for sure. He he basically goes up, and it's very common practice to thank your other nominees, mm-hmm. but he goes to each individual one and says what he enjoyed about their performance and it feels so genuine. And he basically says, I'm so glad they changed this uh, from, and the winner is to, and the Oscar goes to, because there's no one winner here tonight. And it's like, I'm also genuinely shocked that he won. Yeah, I did get that sense too. Because even I thought looking at this category and looking at supporting actors, which we'll talk about um, soon, but this is a really packed category as it is. Yeah. Like this is surprising to see in a supporting category because normally we're talking about leading, but for the supporting this year, I mean, they're both really good categories. Yeah, they're loaded. And I, and honestly, I loved what he said about Tom Cruise. He's like, if you had won this for supporting, your pay wage for every other movie you make would have gone way down because <laughs> you would have just been a supporting actor from now on. Yeah. Like that's he's so good. I love Michael Caine. I'm Michael Caine. Yeah, it's one of like I I can't be like he's not my pick by far, but I can't be mad. Like yeah, he went up there and he was just completely delightful. And so he's like, yeah, I made this movie. Thank you. But here, I want to thank all of you for being nominated. Yeah, it's so great. Definitely watch it, whoever's listening, if you have the chance. Mm -hmm. It's on Netflix. It is. Next film. Okay, uh, I think one that we both enjoyed quite a bit. Yes, the Green Mile. Amazing. What are your thoughts? I watched it yesterday for the first time for since like 2012, and I was really blown away. Honestly, um, it's based on the novella. I'll say novella. They were originally written as short form stories, then combined into one to make a novel by Stephen King. As we all know, Misery, The Shining. It's not a supernatural horror by any means. It's more magical realism. And it takes place in a prison. Tom Hanks is the uh, warden of his certain department, which is the death row, pretty much. Mm -hmm. The floors are green. When you walk death row, you're not walking death row. You're walking the green mile. A and one day a man played by Michael Clark Duncan, a big black man, comes in and he is being uh, sentenced to death for the murder of two girls. And stuff starts happening again. I said magical realism, so keyword there is magical. And my DVD case says that the character that Tom Hanks plays didn't believe in miracles until one day. He met one. Wow. And that is so, that is so, can I curse on this show? (laughs) Go for it. That is so fucking beautiful to me. (laughs) Like he didn't believe in miracles until he met one. Yeah. 
I love it. It's, but it's it, it's not like it's not corny. It's not cheesy. Not no. And it, it, in fact, it's so hard to watch at times. It's so weird that this is a Stephen King story. It is. It is. There's like, so much. People just expect him to write horror stories, but at the same time, he can write about humans. Yeah. And I, hope. I, I don't know if he's a uh, religious by any means, but this is a very soulful movie. I mean, again, miracles, faith. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a long movie. I I would not say it feels long when you're watching. It goes by, I don't want to say quickly, like it takes its time, but it's just, I, I think just feel so invested. The reason that it does that, that it is three hours long is because of, I read anyway, or maybe this was a review, that you feel like you are on death row with these people and uh, you get to see them live out their pretty much last lives. Because yeah. like his name is John Coffey, the character Michael Clark Duncan plays. You meet him right when he enters death row and you stay with him until he's done on death row. Yeah. 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 Spoiler alert. He he does indeed get sentenced to death and he does get sent to the electric chair. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the characters, it's all about the characters. You know, I will say this, this, cast is almost all male i mean it takes place at a prison a male prison in what the 30s Mm -hmm. and so um but we do have good performances from um bonnie Bonnie hunt and patricia clarkson Mm -hmm. but what an ensemble i mean tom hanks is tom hanks he's great michael clark duncan is unbelievable how about i mean playing another stupid evil character but how about Sam Rockwell in this movie? This is like, this is baby's first racist role. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, he's really, I mean, he's really good at that. He is. I mean, his character is vile. He's dirty. He's nasty. I mean, and he gets, I mean, I won't say how, but he gets what's coming to him in the end. Yeah. The, the scene with the moon pie. Yeah. It's just like, it's so... What he does, he chews up this moon pie, holds in his mouth for we don't know how long, and then just spits it all over this guy's face. Mm-hmm. And it's so disgusting and so like f- almost funny when you think about it, but at, at the time, it's just like, oh my God, what a jerk. And we're talking like, he's easily able to do this too because this is death row in the 30s. It's not like a high security prison or anything. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these, people, these inmates and these guards can easily touch each other through the bars if they had to. Yep. And I will say that much like um, his name is William Wild Bill Wharton, Sam Rockwell's character. There's the other character of Percy played by Doug Hutchinson, who is the he feels like he's the authority of the prison. He ain't worth shit, but I hated him so much. I'm trying to think of movie characters that I hate more. And the list is small. I mean, it's small. like fuck Percy, honestly. <laughs> Again, it's like these actors in this movie are so good, each and every one of them. Yeah, I mean, he does a nice job of that he gets under your skin. Uh, David Morse, who plays Brutus, like that's his name, Brutus, mm-hmm. big towering guard, but has this sense of compassion. Yeah, you know, especially when he's he comes to like understand that. Uh, coffee has these sort of supernatural healing powers yeah 
and to see his sadness and um, Barry Pepper is also in this role when John Coffey is on his way to the chair. It's just it's it, it's a tearjerker. Mm-hmm. It's it, it feels like literally the loss of a miracle. This is like um, this movie reminds me a lot of Shawshank Redemption in that. I mean, Green Mile made over 100 million. Right. Yeah, yeah it was six million. Uh, Shawshank did not make that much. However, both against Stephen King stories, but because they have been so prominent on TV that people can see them over the years, it's like their popularity has soared. Well, here's interesting parallels. I'm glad you bring up Shawshank because Shawshank, also nominated for Best Picture, also directed by Frank Darabont, mm-hmm. he did not get a nomination for directing either one of them. And he should have. He should have. Yeah, it, it's I. That is wild to me. And he also directed another Stephen King story, The Mist. So it's like he is the king of Stephen King adaptations. He really is. That end up really underappreciated at first, but as the years go by, they become like, wow, this is really good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, it was just nice to watch this film and you know, get down deep into the souls of hardened male characters mm-hmm. and reveal like a deeper compassion and personality. Um, and I'm so glad that like you could feel for coffee and you like, I loved coffee from the beginning that he walked into death row. Yeah. Cause he's, he's such a sympathetic character. You feel so sorry for him and his situation. You come out to learn like the real truth behind why he's there and, and the way that these guards treat their inmates like if you screw up they're gonna let you know but if you are well behaved and whatnot i mean look at what they do for um michael jeter's character edouard delacroix Mm -hmm. Um, he has a mouse and i mean yeah they kind of tell a white lie and say we're gonna take it to this fantasy mouse lands when you go to the chair but they they do see their prisoners as people. Yeah. And so, I mean, honestly, it kind of stands out as an anti capital punishment. Yeah. statement to me. I mean, just the way it presents it, especially in his death scene, because it is so vile and shocking and brutal and flat out gross. And I remembered it so well from the first time I watched it, but yesterday I was just like, I was shocked watching it. Yeah. Like, and it, I mean, it's rated R, so you can see everything pretty graphic. It is very, a graphic execution scene. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, if you ever see it on TV, because I know they show it on AMC channel a lot, you guys watch it. Yeah. Do be prepared for Edouard Delacroix's death scene, because it is, it's one of the more shocking ones I can recall. So terrifying and brutal. Um, but yeah, definitely check it out. Um, by the way, before we move on to the next one, that did have four nominations. Um, Best Picture, Michael Clark Duncan for Supporting Actor, Adapted Screenplay and Sound. Uh, did not win any of them, but it was in there. Big mistake. Big mistake. Okay, moving on to the... Russell Crowe and Al Pacino led The Insider. 
from director Michael Mann. An interesting film amongst the five of these movies, but one that I could say maybe, yeah, it did deserve this Best Picture nominee. Yeah, I'm cool with it. I mean, it wouldn't be my pick, but it's it's, it's well made. Uh, tell us the plot of this one, because I think amongst the five, it is the least watched of all of them. Yeah, least watched that's almost. Not to, that's not to say people haven't seen it, but have any of us heard of it before this? Well, that's my thing is that I had not heard of it, um, which is kind of. It kind of boggles my mind a little bit because this is a 90s movie starring Russell Crowe and Al Pacino. Mm -hmm. And I'd never like it's probably the least forgot the most forgotten of these Best Picture nominees and directed by Michael Mann as well. Yeah, yeah. And he was doing a lot of stuff in the 90s as well. Uh, basically, Russell Crowe is a chemist um, who works for a big tobacco company. He is um, basically let go and signs this agreement to not reveal the secrets of how um, they put chemicals into tobacco that is extremely addictive. Um, he's sought out by Al Pacino's character, uh, who is a producer for 60 Minutes, wants to do this big expose on big tobacco. Um, there are a lot of trials going on around this time to the addictive nature and the chemicals they were using in the products. Um, and basically it's, it's like a, a, a soft core thriller. I say that cause it's not a violent movie, at least physically. It's like a it political is. conspiracy thriller. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, he's got this decision going on. Right. And the big decision is, you know, should he go on 60 minutes and reveal what he knows, putting his family at risk, putting his life at risk? Or um, should he do it also? Should he do it anonymously too? Exactly. Even though, even though that the tobacco industry knows who he is. Right. Exactly. Possible jail time because he signed this uh, non-disclosure agreement. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I, I think that maybe it's been forgotten a little bit because, you know, I, I really enjoyed it and I really thought it was a well-crafted movie. I thought Michael Mann did a great job directing mm -hmm. this thing and the editing is really, really good, but I don't know how much I'll remember it. Yeah. In a few years. I mean, it's like a, it's subject is very one and done where it's like, I, I want to watch this for this but do I really want to watch this one again? Yeah. Not it, saying that it's a long movie because it's about two and a half hours. It is very interesting. I, I paid attention the entire time. I was really interested in this subject. It shocked me that this only took place in the nineties. Yeah. That was, I mean, that was <laughs> learning about what's in the tobacco in the nineties and <laughs> 20 plus years ago, almost 30 years ago. But I don't know. Yeah. It's like, will this movie be remembered? Yeah, and it's funny because I think Russell Crowe, um, his performance was either nominated or maybe included in AFI's like top 50 heroes list, mm -hmm. which is so shocking to me. Not because, I mean, he gives a really good, great performance. Um, I believe he was nominated for it. Yeah, he was. Uh, but it's not like when I think movie heroes, that's definitely not going to come to mind. Yeah. But and I think that also Al Pacino does a really good job in this. Yeah, I, I, I think they're co-leads in the film. Yeah. And I think Al Pacino would personally be my pick. 
but at the same time, Russell Crowe really inhabits that character. Yeah. Really well. So. I mean, and it's a good, I mean, this, the topic in this case, the chemicals in cigarettes, it's a very important topic. I mean, everybody knows that cigarettes are bad for you. And it's just sort of amazing to see that this was such a push not to get this information out there. Yeah, for sure. Then, like, surprise, they went and made a movie about it. Yeah, and it, it kind of reveals, albeit, it made me think of Network a little bit, although in a much more serious tone um, of the way that TV producers work and operate deciding what goes on the air and what doesn't based on ratings and legal issues and so on and so forth. And at times it's infuriating. Mm -hmm. um, especially when you think about the case of, I'm trying to think of the name of Russell Crowe's character, um, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Wingand. Okay. Yeah. And you know, he goes from being this major chemist to teaching high school chemistry. Mm -hmm. um, so that was cool. Cause it was nice to have like a cool, teacher main character who actually appears to be a pretty good teacher um but yeah and it's kind of infuriating to see what goes on in that 60 minutes newsroom so much so that spoiler alert in the end al pacino's character is kind of just done with it yeah uh, pissed off at the whole thing and so yeah, yeah um like we said directed by michael mann it's had a decent box office showing about 30 million dollars Seven nominations, no wins, um, is nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, it is. Oh. And that's one thing. It's like its technical merit is pretty well up there. Mm -hmm. uh, best Picture, Best Director for Michael Mann, um, Russell Crowe for Best Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay, Cinematography, Film Editing, and Sound. And really, it's one that I would have probably strongly considered for the film editing category. Yeah, it does have good editing, I must say. I'm trying to think of what that actually went to. I want to say American Beauty. I think you're right. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, The Matrix. Oh, oh. The Matrix. Plot yeah. twist. There we go. Anything else on The Insider? It's a good movie, surprisingly. Again, will we remember it in a few years after this? I don't know, unless you're a super Michael Moore fan, because they're not Michael Moore, Michael Mann, because there are a hell of a lot of you out there. Yeah. Especially yeah, for sure. Twitter. I still am not sure who he is. No, <laughs> I do know who he is. I just don't. Shut up, Christian. Film Twitter worships the man, and I've seen like a few movies of his, and they're good, but I don't understand what the big deal is. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely not. I don't seek out Michael Mann movies. I think I've yeah. seen this and I've seen the last of the Mohicans. Yeah. Um, I've seen collateral. Oh, collateral. I do enjoy that one. So. It's like all his films are the same in how they feel. They're very dark. They're very heavy. Yeah. This, I mean, this, especially the insider being very, very heavy. Yeah, for the sure. The conspiracy here. Yep. Okay. Three down two to go. And the next one, I'm sure, is very familiar to most listeners. Christian, do you want to take it away? Let me say it. Go for it. I see dead people. It's the sixth sense. Wow. 
It's the surprise box office hit of 1999, The Sixth Sense, directed by M. Night Shyamalan, who was supposed to be the next Steven Spielberg. But that is a time for another podcast. So we shall talk about this, his magnum opus, as it were. The Sixth Sense, the story of the little boy who could see dead people and his child psychologist who helped him out with all that. Because, you know, when a little kid says, hey, I can see dead people, you got to help the kid out. Yeah, um, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to issue a spoiler alert, alert now. You've had 20 Not that years. Now. Yeah, you've had 20 years. It's going to come up at some point. Even if you haven't seen the movie, you probably know what it is. But I'm just going to let you know now. Spoiler alert. Skip ahead if you want to. Um, And that's expected. M. Night Shyamalan is known for putting these twists in his movies. You always kind of wait for him. And this one is, I would say, his biggest, at least that I've seen. Mm-hmm. I mean, The Village is up there, but that's kind of dumb. And so <laughs> <laughs> this one is, I was I was really pretty surprised by this movie, not going to lie. Um, when I first time seeing it, too. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when I was going in, I was like, this was nominated for Best Picture? Like, what the hell? M. Night Shyamalan? I mean, I've heard The Sixth Sense is good, but is it that good? Mm-hmm. I was so surprised by it. I was expecting, like, this horror-esque film, not something that is really touching in some ways. And it's much like Hereditary without all the violence. And I say that because of the family dynamic. Yes. And a much happier ending. And much, much happier ending. To a degree. I mean, at least between Haley Joel and Tony Collette. Yeah. um, Who, like in Hereditary, plays the mother figure in this film. And damn, is she good. She is. She's so good. I mean, she knows how to play mothers to like, you know, how do I want to put the supernatural elements? Yeah. Yeah. And so like Christian said, this is a... A film about a young boy, Haley Joel Osment, also brilliant, um, who can see ghosts, but it's it's not it's not like an out to scare you at some points, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not that type of horror film. He's only about 10 years old and they don't torment him at all. This isn't like one of those types of movies, but instead they sort of lead him to help them move on. And he sort of becomes this little detective and like why these people died, things they may want before they cross over. I mean, he helps the little girl figure out that she didn't die just by natural causes. Again, spoiler alert, that her mom was actually slowly killing her mm-hmm. by putting pine salt in her soup. Oh my gosh. Yeah, didn't see that coming. There's and don't see coming in this movie. Yeah, and also Bruce Willis, like his character surprised me. I mean, he's another one who's kind of like, I'm used to seeing him, seeing him in the tough guy role. Yeah. And this one is much more layered and, and he has hair. Ooh. <laughs> his hair. <laughs> he has hair. Uh, but, and his, his chemistry with Haley Joel Osment is one of the great aspects of the film, I think. Mm-hmm. And so, I, w- I mean, I want to talk about sort of the editing process of this. Yes spoil the movie 
because again, you've had 20 years. So this whole time, Bruce Willis, this child therapist is um, working with Haley Joel Osment's character. Um, seems like a normal thing. And in the end, we realize that Bruce Willis is a ghost. He has been dead for almost the entire movie. And like uh, Haley Joel says, they don't realize that they're dead. He doesn't realize he's dead until the very end. Yeah. So in the end, we get a montage that I think is perfectly placed, obviously, because it's at the end where everything that we've seen up to this point has been a lie to trick us. There's been scenes where Bruce is sitting across from Tony Collette. They're not talking to each other because it looks like they're just calmly sitting. And then Haley Joel walks in. He looks at both of them. He talks to both of them. There's a dinner scene with his wife who looks like she's mad at him. He's not talking to him. But we think this is all real. The editing is so tricky to us. Yes. Like, this is my personal... I don't... I'm not really good at noticing editing, I must say. I'm like the Bohemian Rhapsody of editing if I must... Somebody <laughs> But, like, you notice how well this editing works in this. Because when I first saw this, I didn't know he was dead. I thought that his wife... You... Even now, you think that his wife is just pissed off at him. Mm -hmm. You think that him and Tony Collette aren't, like, talking, but at the same... But, at, like, in the end, of course they won't be talking to each other. Yeah, and I I did know the twists. Um, you want to know how I know the twists? Fifty First Dates. That movie came out in 2004, and there was a scene where they're watching The Sixth Sense. In the end, Drew Barrymore is like, I can't believe Bruce Willis is a ghost. So I've known, you know, I've known that because there's a scene in the beginning where he's actually shot by a man. We think he survives it. We find out he didn't. Mm -hmm. But that did not affect my experience at all. In fact, I just got to view it in a different way where I was like watching what M night was doing throughout the movie to maintain yeah. that he was a living person. And I'm like, Holy shit, this is impressive. And like the uses of red too, to signify something's about to happen. Did you catch those? I didn't. Wow. Yes. Every time the color red is shown in the sixth sense, that something sort of supernatural is going to happen. Wow. That's yeah, that's why you all that's why also he devoids red from any scene unless it's like to that. Um mm. example is at the birthday party where he gets trapped in like a closet. The door, either the door, or the door hand no, the door is red. Ah, okay. The basement the basement door to Bruce characters, the doorknob is red, and he can't open it for some reason. Well, because there's in the end there's a table blocking it. Wow. This is just I it's and the scene where he M. Haley Joel Osment greatest. What's that? This is M Night Shyamalan's greatest. It is, and the scene where he's first telling Bruce Willis what he can do, what that he sees ghosts. The way the dialogue there. First of all, Haley Joel Osment is like asking for a bedtime story, and he criticizes Bruce Willis's storytelling because there's no twists, mm -hmm. there's no twists and turns and stuff. That should have been our cue if we weren't paying attention. This He's letting like, you know it's coming. This, like this and something like The Empire Strikes Back with I Am Your Father. These are the kind of movies that I would love to go back in time and see people's reactions. Yeah. Because I've tried on Google to see if anybody had recorded back in 99. Like this twist, you can really only find people watching it today who don't know. I mean, they're still pretty interesting. They're all really, really shook about it. Mm -hmm. But it's like, I want to sit in an audience who had never seen this movie 
like the premiere night and notice like he figures out he's dead and everybody's like wait what i got chills even saying that right now yeah like sitting in an audience like roger ebert next to me and then it's like no you're dead this whole time wait what <laughs> look i'm so i'm so excited about this movie it's just so fucking good yeah and like you said it was a it was a smash it was the number two movie of the year in box office almost 300 million dollars and people ate it up i i have two questions for you about this movie and some of the stuff surrounding it first are you surprised that it got a best picture nomination no i'm not Okay, because this this nomination feels a little bit like I know it's not a pure horror movie, but it feels more psychological, like Silence of the Lambs, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also think it's it's the box office pick for that year. Yeah, it's like the popular movie. If we had a popular movie award. Yeah, yeah, it would probably win. Uh, my other question is. I guess I'm thinking of the career trajectory of. M. Night Shyamalan, he releases this movie. We hear that he's going to be the next Steven Spielberg. He does Unbreakable, um, I believe, a year later, which is also really good. Like, what happens? Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, a little movie called. Okay, some people would say The Village. I've enjoyed The Village. I'm going to say a little movie called Lady in the Water. Mm where I think people got too hooked on his sort of plot twist. That one really didn't have a plot twist. It, it's plot twist is more meta where we have to feel it. We don't see it on screen. And it's, I don't know, it's a confusing movie. And then he made a blunder with the happening. Yeah. Which is B quality, but it comes off more funny than anything. Then he made the avatar movie, which all fans of that hate it. Then he made After Earth, and he's he's starting to come back with his movies. Yeah, but it's so weird how it's hard to top a a twenty year old movie. Yeah, and I mean he he did Signs. I forgot to mention Signs. That's another good one. I I, think. I watched Signs recently in a different light, and I was awakened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and my thing about M Night, I think I've talked to you about this before, is that. His movies are criticized all the time, mm -hmm. but I think he's just making what he wants to make and he's going to make it. Yeah. You know, I, maybe he cares about what people are saying, maybe not, but I think that's just his thing. Yeah. And it's what it is. And he's really big on families because this sort of starts that family dynamic. Yeah. Mother and son. And that scene at the dinner table when she asks him like, who took my bumblebee pen? And she starts crying. Oh my God. It's yeah. like Tony Collette in this. She's so good. I'm so glad she got an Oscar nom for this. Yeah. And I was thinking that, that scene in the emergency room, um, not the emergency room, the, uh, the healthcare center, wherever she is, um, where she's worried about losing her son. Cause they think that she beat him. You know, he has all these bruises and whatnot that, that that was just so emotional, straightforward, authentic performance just in that scene yeah. alone. Ugh, such a good movie, you guys. Again, on Netflix. Yeah. Um, six nominations for this one. Again, this didn't get any wins either. Um, it was nominated for Best Picture. 
Best Director for M. Night, Original Screenplay, Haley Joel Osment for Supporting Actor, Tony Collette for Supporting Actress, and Best Film Editing. And I think, you know, you and I both agree, probably maybe should have won that Best Editing Award. Yeah. I personally have it for Director and Screenplay. Again, the screenplay tricks you into thinking that everything's normal. Um, and supporting actors because Tony is great and film editing. Yeah, I I would also pick Tony Collette for best supporting actress. Supporting actor, I go back and forth. Haley Joel and Michael Clark Duncan are both so great. Um, you could argue Haley Joel Osment is the lead here. Yeah. Um, but he's 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 so great, so good. It's a shame his career will only come back to this movie. I know, I know. But hey, that's what child actors get. Yep, I'm sure he's doing okay. Okay, anything else on The Sixth Sense? That's it. Time for the final one. All right, you want to roll us on home with this one? And the Oscar goes to American Beauty. American Beauty director by directed by Sam Mendes. It was because we're talking box office number 13 at the box office was 130 million, which today that'd be like what number 55 or something. It won, it took home best picture, best director for Mendes. Um, the late Kevin Spacey won actor (laughs) in cinematography. It was also nominated by, it was also nominated for best actress for Annette Benning, uh, score and film editing. And I've seen it many times. I love this movie in, I mean, in today's standards, it's really weird watching it for what reasons i do not know yes we do know so let's talk to the person who had never seen it before and is seeing it in the light of again the late kevin spacey's many many accusations take it away brett well you can't watch it without thinking of that and it's not just because he's on screen it's because of the content of the film he is basically fantasizing about his teenage daughter's best friend He's also a teenager, if that wasn't clear. Oh, man, it's creepy. It, it's already creepy to begin with, but knowing what we know now, it you I, I can't watch without thinking that, but damn it, it's a, it's an amazing movie. It is. It's so good. It's and, fun, but it's like dramatic at the same time. You feel sort of sorry for Lester Burnham. You feel sorry for his wife for having to put up with his bullshit after he mm-hmm. had this big old, like, what do you call it? Midlife crisis. But like I said, today it's, it's, it's different to watch. Yeah. And I mean, you know, give it credit for its merits. Like when you're talking about a movie about suburbia, um, you know, middle-class white suburban America mm-hmm. and turning that into a dramatic satire in a sense i mean um, i pick offenses you have the symbolic red roses everything looks clean it's perfect but in each of the houses on the inside it's not perfect at all turmoil yeah honestly from both uh the main family annette benning kevin spacey their daughter and even the family next door yeah there's so much um 
I don't know what the word would be. My mind went blank. It's very, I keep saying it's deep movie. It's a deep movie. This is very deep movie. Yeah, it really is. And it, it it's built on the characters. The screenplay is just fantastic. Um, both with the dialogue and the way it, it interweaves and moves between these characters and giving each of them their spotlight in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Annette Bening ran for best actress in this. I think they're trying to win the big five, which they almost did. Dang. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think Eileen supporting. supporting. Yeah. Right. She feels supporting in this. Because, yeah. Like he has a lot more screen time. He's definitely lead. The daughter even seems a little bit more leading than Annette Benning does. Yeah. And I think that, Screen time is one thing. And then if you think about the narrative, like it, it's built around Kevin Spacey's character. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she's got her own scenes. She's got her own story, but it's all kind of in relation to his midlife crisis. Yeah. And what he's going through. And I like for like the first time in a movie, she is not like the sacrificing housewife who gives up everything for her husband. She's a realtor. She could care less about her husband if she wanted to they have like a brief moment where there's like everything's going right she fucks that up he fucks things up they don't see eye to eye and then in the end you know yeah this film kind of has its own little twists or you know situational drama is how i would like to describe it that things happen unexpectedly for specific reasons and honestly a little bit of chance comes into play um filed under a movie i saw when i was probably too young but i enjoyed nonetheless uh, yeah yeah it's it's really something else it's i can't say i've seen anything quite like it Mm -hmm. and like you said it's because of that mixture it has the comedy it has the drama it's also satirical in a sense um i don't think it like at times it feels like it's not taking itself seriously at all. And at times it's like, Oh my gosh, like what's it's super serious, especially in the end. I see it. And I think back on like the movies of the 1950s and just the lifestyle of the 1950s, where you have this big prosperous boom of baby boomers and they're getting into suburbia, the suburbs are being built. And this movie is taking all of that again, the perfection of it dismantling it to shreds yeah exactly like no this is the 90s nothing's perfect anymore right like you want a perfect family Mm, no more i also like movies to where i can kind of form my own ideas about what it's saying but i'm also left with questions like what is this really trying to tell me yeah you know because this movie has a lot of like afterthoughts to it too right and it's kind of weird how we leave. I'm just going to dive into Kevin Spacey's character a little bit. Lester Burnham. Um, sexually repressed. Mm-hmm. Him and his wife. Both. Um, lust after. Other people. You know, teenage woman. And basically goes to this midlife crisis. He quits his job. Blackmails his boss. Goes out and buys a fancy car. Goes and works for a drive through uh, And the scene in which he catches his wife cheating on him is it's hilarious it's so iconic too (laughs) 
he's he's in this driveway his his boss is there and she's like what she say like oh you're so screwed or something like that shout and, out to uh, marissa janet winoker because that's her from okay the original tracy from the broadway hairspray nice yeah and like i think in that meeting it's like this is none of your business and kevin's space like actually this is her business she's the manager she's here so manager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah things like that it's quirky and how it all comes to an end lester burnham having this great realization that this isn't what he wants mm-hmm. um i don't know if i want to spoil this one or not but I the end should what's that i don't think you should i'm not going to but it, it leaves me thinking it leaves me wondering if i thought differently about his character yeah there's a lot of layers there a lot of depth do we feel sorry for him or does everything that happened to him does he have it coming in his own doing yeah exactly yeah again this i think this is the most layered movie nominated because again you do have questions through the whole thing i i've seen it so many times i still have questions yeah and i we're going to get into this, but I, I'll go ahead and say now of the five movies nominated, it's not even a question. I think this is the best and it's my favorite. There you go. There's your answer. Should it have won? Yeah, it should have. And I'll go into where I put the others, but American Beauty, great pick for best picture. Mm-hmm. Really was the best of that year. Um, do you think Annette Bening would have won best supporting actress if she had gone supporting? Ooh, I think yes. Yeah, I think so. I think so too. People like her. She's a really good actress as well. Angelina's good in Girl Interrupted, which we'll talk briefly about later on. But I don't know. I think you have such like, again, she has the comedy. She really has more comedic moments in American Beauty than she does dramatic and stuff but it's like a good performance it's out of the norm she's not that doting housewife she's a housewife who could give like two fucks about her husband it's just like it and she owns that role honestly she, she I will does. this house today <laughs> she's wonderful and as she's one that definitely has an overdue narrative going now she um, let's oh, put her in that yeah, so maybe should have won there. She should win an Oscar just for having marrying Warren Beatty. <laughs> no kidding. I say that. Okay, um, American Beauty, real quick. Um, I guess you went over all the nominations and the wins already, but yeah, definitely not just Best Picture, but the biggest winner of the night. Really the only Best Picture nominee that had a really big showing. Yep. Um cider house rules was the only other film that won any awards which is odd to me out of five movies yeah so i do want to i do want to point out uh i i want to say something about kevin spacey's speech Mm. Uh, in hindsight it's very odd because he said quote any single act from any single person put out of context is damnable yeah <sighs> i'm gonna leave that out there for you to think about folks and on that one give that some thought as you watch american beauty and cringe but also adore the masterful filmmaking behind it yes 
good way to put it. Alrighty, so uh, before we move on um, to our break in this session, we're going to go ahead and, Christian, if it's all right with you, let's rank these five films that were nominated for Best Picture and share our picks. Go ahead. Uh, so I'll start with number five, um, The Cider House Rules. No surprise. I think it's by far still a decent film, but by far the worst of this, you know, this litter. Um, the Insider, number four. The Sixth Sense would be my number three. And that's the one that really starts getting really good for me. Green Mile at number two and American Beauty. The Deserving Winner at number one. I'm sorry, folks. I promise one day I will pick something other than the Best Picture winner. <laughs> Not this time. And my ranking, and I think this is the first time it has happened, is the exact same thing. What? Yeah. Look at that. Yeah, folks. That's awesome. Teamwork. What do you know? I, I'm going to tell you right now. Next like we said, next is 1939. There are 10 movies there. You think that that is going to be the same? Good luck. <laughs> Not happening. If I mean, so, the yeah. hell might freeze over. So. But like Brett said, American Beauty is just like, out of this, it wasn't a competition. I mean, all like Green Mile, Six Sense, for me, are five-star movies. They're great, but American Beauty is just, it's the tops. Yeah, it's, it's just got more. So, alrighty. So, what we're gonna do now? Um, if we haven't figured it out already, 1999 is a pretty good year. And normally, when that happens, there's a lot of great films, good films that come out outside of the nominees. We are gonna get to those, um, but we're gonna take a quick break, and we're gonna end this part of the episode with this session. Make sure that you tune in to part two of this episode if you want to hear our thoughts on other films from this year, as well as our picks for. Uh, other categories from this year. See if we had anything that would have topped American Beauty that wasn't nominated. We will talk to you then. See ya. This is the 72nd Annual Academy Awards. It's a highly charged scene here at the Shrine Auditorium as tonight's Oscar hopefuls greet fans and reporters along the red carpet. Everyone is wondering who will take home film's highest honor. Michael Clark Duncan nominated for his first Oscar tonight. Winner last year for Shakespeare in Love, Dame Judi Dench. Michael Caine nominated for The Cider House Rules. The music world's hottest stars taking part in Hollywood's biggest night, Faith Hill.